0: So I played high school basketball and I wasn't good enough to be on the basketball team in college, but I would like scrimmage with those guys. I went to a small D3 school. So I've always loved playing basketball and I have this like chip on my shoulder that I'm better than I look. But uh, you've said publicly in your bio that you're grateful every day that you got cut from the basketball team
1: two years in a row. Yeah. What's that about? Yeah, it's just good data for me. Uh, I, I got cut from the basketball team by the same person in sixth and seventh grade. Um, the same coach, coach sixth and seventh grade basketball. I went out for the team because I, you know, all my friends were doing it. I wasn't that tall. I was a late bloomer. Um, I just wasn't that good at basketball, and the coach told me that.
0: Not an unfamiliar start to a success story, right? Michael Jordan made this particular story famous. He got cut from, in his case, the JV basketball team in high school, and he used that as motivation to get better, to prove the doubters wrong. In fact, he kept that chip on his shoulder for the rest of his career, becoming the greatest basketball player in history, and when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he actually mentioned getting cut, as if it wasn't clear to everybody on the planet that he'd proved the doubters wrong. So when you hear at the top of this show that somebody was cut from their team early in life, well... You might be tempted to extrapolate out from there because it's a familiar story. Our hero feels slighted and uses that to prove them wrong. But allow me to submit to you now my nominee for podcasting's least necessary statement awards. Ready? Max Yoder is not Michael Jordan. Max, the guy you heard before, is the co-founder and CEO of the software company Lessonly based in Indianapolis. Lessonly sells training software for teams like sales and customer support, and they're used by brands ranging from Birchbox to Zendesk. I I couldn't find a customer that started with A. That would have been perfect. A to Z. Killing me, Max. Come on. (laughs) What was I saying again? Oh, yeah. Max is not Michael Jordan. Winner podcast's least necessary statement award. Thank you. Thank you very much. So Max was cut from his basketball team not once, but twice, two years in a row, sixth and seventh grade
1: that's enough, uh, anecdotes for me to say, Hey, i got a little data going on here. So that allowed me to just spend my, uh, my, my time doing other things. And what I ended up doing was video editing, uh, and building my first computer. And that's a, not as complicated as it might sound to anybody who's never kind of put the pieces of a computer together, but I was able to go on eBay and, you know, buy the Ram, buy the, buy the hardware, buy, buy the chassis, uh, and just start plugging stuff in and making mistakes along the way and just getting really interested in it. So because I was told, you know, by by somebody who cared about me, which was that coach, that this is not the place to focus your energy, I was able to focus it elsewhere and I'm grateful for that.
0: In Max's story, there is no moment of saying to doubters, "I'll show you, I'll prove you wrong." There's no aggressive pushback when people point out his flaws. Doubt, criticism, and critiques don't turn Max into Mad Max. Instead, He believes we should eagerly listen to all of that stuff, at least from the people we trust, people who know us and care about us, and yes, that should mean our colleagues and our bosses. We too should raise doubts freely when it comes to others, and that's particularly important in our journey here on the show, where all year long we're exploring what it takes to avoid stagnation and create consistently great work. Our thesis is we have to master the art of reinvention. Not wholesale change, but small moments of innovation and creativity done consistently over time to avoid stagnation and keep shipping refreshing work. So how do you point out when somebody on a team, or your boss, or your client does something stale or is just mailing it in every day? Or when you just plain disagree with something your organization is doing? Or when everybody feels like the work is good, but you realize, ah, we could be better? Almost always, these kinds of thoughts either go unmentioned or When we do raise them, they create that kind of pushback that, oh yeah, well I'll show you, you're wrong. Others either shut down, or they dig in even harder. We turn into Michael Jordan, and not the good traits. And honestly, it'd be so much better if we were more Max Yoder than Mike. Today on the show, we wonder, when the enemy is stagnation, how can we communicate to others that it's time to reinvent? Better yet, how do we create a culture of open and honest communication all in the name of doing better work? The problem is we don't have a system in place for communicating like that. Thanks to Max, after this episode, we will. It's simple, empowering, and awesome keep going. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Aconzo. A confession to you, my dear listener friend, there's one pushback to my entire body of work that I fear most from you one pithy statement that seems to instantly shut down all my writing, this show, my keynote speeches, all of it. It goes like this. Sure, Jay, that's all well and good, but my boss. That comes in different flavors too, but my teammates, but my clients, but this other person at work, which prevents me or us from doing anything better than we're doing right now. So let's just stick to the same old, same old status quo, even if to your horror and mine when I speak to you, It's totally stagnant, totally commodified work. I used to think that I needed to come up with some kind of clever methodology that we can all use to solve this but my boss problem. But this year, I just started wondering something simple. How many of us are willing to just sit down to have an honest and direct conversation about whatever it is we need to talk about directly with the other person or people? Are we even having that conversation?
1: I think we often see moments of having to be honest with somebody as moments of conflict uh, and conflict in a lot of people's minds is a bad thing. I like to look at conflict as information. So if I'm not getting uh, the information, then I can't make the best decisions. So if somebody's uh, holding back for me because they don't want to maybe create conflict, they're not doing me any, 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 any service I- I- in that regard. Um, and I'm not doing any other people's service if I'm frustrated by something or if I'm upset with something and not talking to them about it or if I just need more from them. Uh, so I think it's just about how we view conflict that stops us from having those discussions. We're not taught how to engage in, 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 with conflict. And because we don't have a lot of skills there, we really just can model, we only really can model the behaviors that were shown to us. And in that case is usually our parents or our family members and they didn't get taught either. So we just, nobody's ever learned. And that, way, that, and that means nobody's really teaching anybody else anything other than what they picked up uh, as they went. Uh, and I don't think that's a great way to take on such an important topic like conflict.
0: Disassociation is the word I would use, where it's we we it's easy to say, actually, matters are entirely out of my control. And so I'm just di- disassociating from the lesson in Max's book, for example. That's Max's new book, Do Better
1: Work. Oh, yeah. Well, when you ultimately get down to it, we choose... Many of us are fortunate enough to choose where we spend our time and where we spend our days and who we spend them with. And if we're unwilling to make a choice to find folks who, um, we feel like, uh, will support us, uh, is ultimately our choice. Um, so if you want to stay on the team and you want to have the excuse of, well, I can't get anything done. A couple questions. Have you asked, like you said, and, uh, why are you still there? Why are you still there? I understand it's hard. I understand it's hard to leave a job, but uh, we cannot, we will not live rich and fulfilling lives if we are constantly just loading in excuses for, for our lack of forward motion, because ultimately our forward motion is our own responsibility. And I could always point to some reason why I wasn't able to make progress. uh, But that ultimately just makes me a victim. And I'm, uh, I'm just, I think uh, I want people to live rich and fulfilling lives full of joy. And the more we allow ourselves to convince ourselves that uh, it's not our fault where we are, it's somebody else's fault where we are. Well, in most cases, you and I are not oppressed. Um, you and I have can can make changes in our lives to get where we want to be. We just don't. And at the end of the day, we have to take responsibility for that and not put it on somebody else's shoulders.
0: One of the core tenets in the book, as I read it, is nonviolent communication. I loved this idea. I fell in love with it and I had to talk to Max. And I believe that this concept of nonviolent communication holds the key to helping people who lead teams or work on teams to continually reinvent the work to do it better. To help us make sense of nonviolent communication, I tried to give Max an example of what I wish I told a CMO I used to work for back when I felt like my team was plateauing and even breaking. Uh, You know, I've worked for some marketing teams where we had a lead goal every month and at the end of every month, we would just barely make it. And we knew we could just barely make it every month. And we were at capacity. So it was like, we got to get out from this. Like, it was like digging holes in dry sand. So we were caught between a rock and a hard place. Because it was like, everybody knew, we can't keep doing this. But we, no one was willing to say to the CMO, hey, actually, I know we're hitting our numbers. We might have to miss our numbers or risk missing our numbers next month to find a more sustainable way to not only hit our numbers in two months, but to really far su- exceed those expectations in the future. Like we were just focused on today instead of setting up tomorrow to be easier.
1: Yeah, I think you're using nonviolent communication in a way when you come to somebody uh, like the CMO and you say, for the past three quarters, we've hit the goal by the skin of our teeth or we've, we've hit the goal you know, with one day left in the, in the quarter. Um, I'm nervous about continuing that pattern. I need us to be uh, growing. And I feel that, I think right now that there is a lack of growth. My request is uh, we experiment next quarter with some things that might land us shy of the number, but will give us a good indication of how we can build a better team. And the person could say no, um, but that conversation is an important one to have.
0: Wow. So can you give me like the meta framework of what you just did? Because it seems so logical in your mind, the way you lay
1: that out. So we, we, we... We start nonviolent communication with our observations, which are just uh, reflections of concrete facts that happened in in an environment. So when we go back and we say the last three quarters, we've made the goal uh, in the last 24 hours of the quarter. Um, That is something that if you went back and measured it, everybody would agree it happened, right? It's not saying um, we, we, we barely made it. It's like here's the concrete thing that happened in the last three quarters. We made it on the last day. Uh, so that's the observation. Next thing is the feeling. A feeling is uh, something like I'm sad, I'm upset, or I'm happy, or I'm elated. Uh, these are words that everybody recognizes and can relate to. If I say I'm nervous uh, about that, I'm nervous about the, the fact that for the last three quarters, we've hit the goal on the last day. That makes me nervous. Now I'm sharing my feelings. I state the observation. Now I'm stating my feelings. Needs are about, uh, what do I need, uh, um, from a the sense of safety or uh, I need collaboration or I need consistency or I need opportunity. Needs are another thing that are universal. Uh, We, we tend to relate to other people's needs when we actually speak about needs and we tend to not really have a great vocabulary for feelings or needs, which is a big part of nonviolent communication. It's building our vocabulary for feelings or needs. I got a list in the book that are just feelings and needs. So people can learn what a feeling is and what a need is. Then the last thing is the request. So what would you have the person do, uh, in order to bring more joy or to reduce the feeling of nervousness. And that's the request of, I'd like us to try something different this quarter, even if it means risking the number.
0: Woo, awesome, right? Okay, let's just make sure we have that framework. Number one, an observation. Not theoretical, not opinion-based. Something concrete that we can all agree happened. For instance, for three straight quarters, we've hit our goal on the very last day of the quarter. Number two, a feeling. How are you or others feeling about that observation? For instance, that makes me really nervous. Number one, an observation. Number two, a feeling. Number three, needs. What's lacking that caused the observation to exist and, if provided, would address your feeling? For instance, we need better collaboration or team-wide alignment and camaraderie. So, observation, feeling, needs. And number four, the request. What would you have this person do, or what would we do collectively to address the feeling and provide what's needed? Let's run it back from the beginning, because it all leads to this one, to number four, the request. So, number one, observation, we've hit our goal for three straight quarters on the very last day of the quarter, and I'm feeling, number two, really nervous about that. Number three, we need collaboration from the various teams within our department from day one every quarter. And so, number four, my request is that we try a few more cross-departmental experiments that could potentially have a higher impact and help us far exceed our expectations this quarter, not just hit it on the last day. By the way, given that request, this might also cause us to miss our quota. And so if we can agree to this request, I'd like your help as the CMO communicating that this approach is something you approve of to provide psychological safety and instill confidence in the team so that they don't just revert back to the actions that are causing us to be nervous in the first place. Observation. Feeling. Needs. Requests. Nonviolent Communication.
1: It's it's incumbent on the manager of a team to provoke those conversations. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? A manager who comes at at a situation with a kind of command and control style where they just tell people what they need them to do, uh, that manager is going to implicitly suggest that they know the answer, that they know the way. And people are going to respond, their teammates are going to respond to that by uh, following whatever they say to do and not questioning it. And that's incredibly dangerous because what you're doing there is you're taking one set of eyes and you're relying simply on one set of eyes when you could be relying on, uh, you know, however many people uh, that you have on the team times two. You know, if you got six people on the team and you're only relying on two eyes uh, and one brain, uh, you could you could multiply that by six X. But the, but the manager has to set the expectation and the tone that they are willing to be challenged, they want to be challenged, that they don't have all the answers, that they don't necessarily know the way, that they're making their best guess right now. Everybody's making their best guess right now. All the time, we're making our best guesses. Some managers uh, hide that fact because they believe that a leader should know the answer, should be able to dominate life and, and know the way. Um, I believe leaders should learn the answer. And we set a tone that learning the answer uh, is the is what is real and what's expected, then leaders can start asking questions. They can start being more unsure. They can admit when they don't know. And that starts this cascade of behaviors that that are incredibly valuable. When, when When we believe that leaders should learn the answer, we start having conversations that we otherwise might not have. We start having teammates come to us and suggesting opportunities that we might not have otherwise seen or pointing out potential icebergs ahead that we might not have otherwise seen but, but that all starts with how is the manager behaving? What expectations is the manager setting? What communication is the manager enabling or suppressing?
0: I love that answer so much. I want to marry it and have lots of little
1: baby answers with it. (laughs) Oh, I appreciate you letting me talk about that. I think it's just, it's all about the safety people feel and the safety comes from the models that are being set for them. Uh, and the models come from, you know, the people who have authority and it's either moral, moral authority or hierarchical authority, you know, are the main ones that we see on teams. Um, moral authority is uh, is way more impactful, in my opinion. Somebody doesn't necessarily have a line item on a budget or direct reports, but they can still push people toward action. Um, but either way, if you have authority, whatever you're doing, expect other people to, uh, to do the same. So if you're not asking people for their input, don't expect your teammates to ask other people for their input. Uh, if you're showing up to meetings late, don't expect other people to show up to meetings on time. Um, what are you doing? Because if you want to see something, you have to be it. Uh, and I think life gets really clarifying when you live under the lens of, well, if I'm going to expect that of other people, I first have to do it myself. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just want, I want more people to live that way because I think you learn a lot about yourself through that, through that endeavor.
0: Max has been trying to learn a lot about himself over the years. I think so often when we feel a certain way about others or our circumstances, the more self-awareness we have, the better equipped we are to both understand why we're feeling that way and then handle that situation. To have the frank and honest conversation that we need instead of, I don't know, approach someone like me after a speech and say, yeah, but 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 my boss. Look, I get why we react that way because we don't have the methodology, but I think nonviolent communication can be that methodology here's my observation boss, here's how I'm feeling, here are the needs, and here's my request. I think that's a very healthy order of operations for solving the problem. In fact, if you distill it into an even simpler order of operations to solve any big communication problem, I think the first thing we need to do is develop self-awareness. And I wrote about that in my book, Break the Wheel. Self-awareness and situational awareness alone, just those two things. We might, In fact, we might not even need Any of those methodologies or science or best practices, no. If we intimately know ourselves and our situation, often that's enough. But many of us don't ever try to proactively develop that level of awareness. Not Max. Everything he does seems to flow from self-awareness. The the dude is like a, a luxury vehicle, like a BMW 7 Series or something. He's not overly flashy. He's not speeding out of control. He's in control, in command of his full power, cruising. And like anyone, a lot of Max's life was influenced by his parents. His dad was a funeral director, running his own business, and his mother worked for an RV company. And those experiences shaped his career and his ability to develop self-awareness.
1: Yeah, so uh, my grandpa started the funeral home that my dad and his brother still run today. Uh, And that was really neat because I got to see what a business owner looks like. You know, I got to see what the lifestyle uh, of owning your own business looks like compared to my mom, who um, has a has a great job at an RV company. Recreational vehicles are very big uh, in northern Indiana, which is where I'm from, the Elkhart area. Uh my mom was not in control of her destiny because she you know, didn't start or own the company. And then my dad was in control of his destiny and in some ways. You know, he can't, he can't force economics to work in his favor, but there was so many more things that he uh, was able to decide than my mom. I just didn't think I had the constitution for the uncertainty that my mom felt uh, on the times when when you know the RV industry, it was really hard to be in the RV industry over the recession. Uh, Elkhart, Elkhart County, where I'm from, had the highest year-over-year unemployment rate in the nation uh, during the, the recession. So uh, it was one of the places that President Obama visited twice. Um, so it was really challenging to watch people lose their jobs and to, to, to kind of have the rug pulled out from under them um, and and not know what to do next. And then to see my dad who had this steady business, I just would, I it really, it really inspired me to say, I, I'd like to start a business. Even if it's starting a business is not necessarily a steady thing at the beginning, um, it gives you kind of some tools to uh, keep your life steady, whether the business works out or not. I'd say
0: I was surprised to hear you just say that it was your mother who had more uncertainty than your father. You know, I, I I am building my own business, and it's it's largely it's carving a specific niche within another niche within another niche, and it feels like I'm sort of inventing as I go. And um, you know, there's always the issues, as you know, of. What will the revenue look like? What systems and processes do I need to put in place? Like, does this, do I want this to be me and my thing? Do I want it to be me and some freelancers? Do I want it to be me and some employees and scale products versus services? There's millions of decisions. And the classic notion of entrepreneurship is you just have to be comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. And you went right to your mother as the one experiencing that, which I was, I was kind of surprised to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's fair. I mean, there's uncertainty in both worlds. Uh, what I like about my dad's uncertainty is he gets to dial it up or dial it down at, to his own uh, discretion. Uh, if there's uncertainty, it's because he's chosen a certain path and he's, uh, he's, he wants that uncertainty. In my mom's world, uh, you know, she didn't know the next day if her job was going to be there or not. Um, and that that's just not easy. I'm not saying I thought it through incredibly logically. I'm just saying I saw two different people go down two different paths and I made an emotional decision that I wanted to go down one instead of the other.
0: Max found comfort in the fact that, while it might be uncertain in terms of revenue, especially at first, and while it might feel more like a blank canvas than a paint-by-numbers career, being an entrepreneur meant he was in control. When we stay quiet about an issue with the work, or we think that, you know, I would do something but my boss, we don't feel like we have much control. But to Max's point earlier, we all occupy jobs where we make our own choices, we're blessed. We've hit the lottery in this work stuff, even if it doesn't always feel that way. We aren't victims, but we often act like we are. Part of this, Max says, is because we expect something of others. But way too often, we don't communicate with them directly, and so we don't create what Max calls agreements about those expectations.
1: I realized what I was doing in the early days was I'd be frustrated with a teammate and i never had set uh, an expectation or I'd never made an agreement with them about the way they should behave. But I was frustrated that they were behaving uh, a different way than uh, I wanted them to. Um, and I was like, I didn't quite realize that that's where my frustration came from is I needed somebody to do something and I hadn't communicated it to them. It's pretty basic, right? Um but I was, I was comfortable living with the expectations of I need this person to do something and they should just know instead of going to them and saying, hey, can we get an agreement that going forward, here's how uh, we do things? And what do you think of that? And do you have any perspectives yourself that you'd like to add in so we can kind of make this something that's mutually agreed upon? Uh, those little conversations, I just didn't know how to do them. Nobody taught me about getting agreements instead of having expectations until they did. And then I was like, wow, my whole world is broken open in a positive way.
0: What? What's an example of you using nonviolent communication recently at Lessonly in your in your career or at the company?
1: Uh, it was very recent. I sat, da- sat down with somebody who I work with and said, I'm frustrated that this has been uh, that this is still happening three weeks after we first talked about it. We talked about it three weeks ago. I was frustrated. That's nonviolent communication right there. It's just calling out that this has been going on for three weeks. I'm frustrated that it's still happening and then pausing and saying what's going on and let them explain but they know that I'm frustrated. They they know that I believe this is taking a long time to get worked out uh, and they can then say, well, hey hey Max, you're missing a perspective or hey Max, yes, I haven't prioritized it and I said I would. Uh, But it's not kicking that can and being frustrated towards somebody else, it's being direct with them and just letting them know that because this has been going on for three weeks, I find it frustrating. Um, And then having the conversation after that is incredibly important. You know, my biggest issue is, uh, I like to I like to say that I don't have a Wario to my Mario. I'm both my Mario and my Wario. So I, if you know Mario, he's got a a, a, a bad guy. Mario is a video game character called Wario. It's basically the inverse of Mario. And Wario wakes up to make Mario's day not great. And Mario really just wants his day to be great, but Wario keeps getting in the way. I think for all of us, we tend to not have a Wario in the world. There isn't somebody who wakes up every day trying to make our day not go well. We tend to be the person who is both our Mario and our Wario. We want things to go well, but we get in our own way. And I very much know my Wario. And the way he works is seeding self-doubt in my head and telling me that I'm not good enough, I don't matter. And I've gotten to see therapists enough to know that the idea of I'm not good enough and I don't matter is a widely held one. That, that is a thing that holds back uh, the vast majority of people is I'm not good enough. I think imposter syndrome is a good way to sum it up. It's I don't matter. I'm not worthwhile. Um, somebody's going to find out that I don't know what I'm talking about. But then at the same time, I, I believe in all the things that I'm saying. I don't think I don't know what I'm talking about. I just worry that they don't matter to anybody else. I judge, I judge them harshly.
0: Yeah, I I always think about imposter syndrome. <laughs> if I have imposter syndrome, it's over the fact that I don't have imposter syndrome and I'm supposed to say I do. Does, does that make any like I I'm in a creative field and I make stuff and I feel like somebody could hear me say that and be like you egotistical prick. Like like but but the way I look at it is is logical. So my my mom is a preschool teacher, wildly creative. My dad is a software engineer, incredibly logical. And and they saw me from a young age smash those two things together. I would invent worlds with Legos, but then I would line up every character and every vehicle in like nice neat rigid order. And they were like, "Oh no. Like we are warring in his brain, <laughs> this child's brain." And I feel like in the field I'm in, that's incredibly useful to have both. So I can explain in logical fashion why maybe I don't feel imposter syndrome. So I'm curious if this makes any sense at all once I try to articulate it. And I don't think I have before. So you're, I, I, I you really next. want um, you not to
1: have imposter syndrome because I don't think there is, I, I don't think it does me a ton of good. Um, and I, I know, I, I think I just basically get in my own way.
0: So here's here's like the the logical explanation I would put forth. I wonder if this resonates or if you think it misses the mark. It's like, back to your point on like, it's not about having the answer. It's about knowing how to go find it, right? Everyone's doing their, it's their best guess. If you embrace that, we could just use a specific example. I'm, let's say, writing my next book, or I'm creating a podcast, or I'm giving a speech. I am a vessel for the work. Even though I'm putting my full self into the work, I'm still not the work. And so what I can do is disassociate at the same time as I bring my full self to the work. And it's a weird dance you do mentally. But what this leads me to say is, I don't have the answers, but I have gone and found some stuff. Right. And everybody can go and find some stuff. You can go and find stories, maybe from your own life, maybe from someone else. Cool. That's why people would listen to your podcast. It's not because of you. It's because you found some stuff. Are you worthy of finding stuff? You're just as worthy as the most innovative, creative individual you admire. You're just a vessel for the work. And you spent some time looking for some stuff. And all you're trying to do when you create the work is say, here's what I found right? This I love is, this is, Here's what I found. I love that's it. it. Dude. Here's I love what it. I found. I
1: think it's an important thing to keep saying. And it is not a, it's not a reference point that I've used, but I love it because you're right. That's all I really, it's all I really did with the book was read a lot of stuff that I really appreciated and tried to synthesize it, you know, read a lot and experienced a lot and tried to synthesize it. And the experiences I had were other people behaving these ways and me seeing it work. Or other people, uh, you know, writing about other people who behave these ways and seeing it work, and then trying it at work and being like, "Yeah, that does work," and then synthesizing it for other folks. Yeah, I am really just a vent- vessel to synthesize uh, learnings. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm uh, representing what you said as, as well as you did, but I really like what you said.
0: No, I, I totally think I think you got it. I think it's who are you to write that book? You're somebody who went yeah. and found some stuff. So uh, the biggest celebrity you know. And the individual you've never heard of are both equally qualified to go into that closet and pull out a thing. Hey, go in that closet for me. Can you find me the shoes? Like, you don't have to be special to go and do that. That's the work. The work is like, go rummage through some stuff and pull out what you found. And I think if you orient around that, maybe sometimes in those moments of imposter syndrome, you stop feeling it because it's not about you and I. I just
1: want more people to be comfortable when they struggle to understand you know, uh, why they get in their own way, just to talk about it. It's not you know, whether you feel imposter syndrome or not, whatever it is that you feel like is getting in your way, just go find somebody to talk about it with. Because I think a lot of what that does is it helps you realize that these monsters in your head are just in your head and that nobody else believes the things that you believe. But until you say them out loud, it's very difficult to realize that.
0: The phrase don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. How do you feel about that? And how does that fit or not fit with your ideas of uh, doing better work and and nonviolent communication specifically?
1: Yeah, I'm totally comfortable with people bringing problems and not knowing solutions. I think it's great when they can come and say, here's some recommendations I have, but I would much rather people not hang on to a problem because they don't know how to solve it. I'd much rather they came with the problem and said, I don't know what to do with this. I think my main thing when you bring problems is uh, bring problems generously. Uh, don't bring problems, uh, uh, don't point out problems and assume somebody meant to make a problem. Just be charitable in your, in your estimation of the problem, be charitable in why it might be caused. Uh, don't, you know, be a finger pointer in the process, but certainly do point out the problem. Suggest why, where you think it's coming from. And if you don't know how to solve it, I'd rather know that and talk about it. than you not tell me.
0: When things feel stale, or we disagree with the way our teams or our leaders are doing the work, when we feel something just needs to be reinvented so we can ship stuff that's consistently great over time, we often feel like we're not in control. When we feel tempted to go, yeah, it's all well and good to think about mastering the art of reinvention, Jay, but my boss, but all these other people who want the status quo, when we feel that way, we dread the coming conflict. And I think it's because of the way conflict has been positioned to us forever. Conflict is positioned as something to avoid entirely, or more often for successful people, it's positioned as something you push through aggressively. I'll show you, I'll prove you wrong. Even the heroes we idolize always have that notion of the haters in mind. Sometimes I dream that heals me. And so they dug in even more deeply and said, screw you, I'll prove you wrong but maybe we should rethink the way we treat each other when it comes to voicing concerns and presenting problems. Take back control. Use nonviolent communication. Bring others along with you to change, to break from stale patterns and reinvent that work to feel more refreshing for others. In the end, that's how we'll do better work max like max i'd rather be like max This episode of Unthinkable was written and hosted by me, Jay Akunzo, and a big shout out to Max for writing his great book and hopping on to talk to us today. Uh, If you like what we're up to with the show, I'm starting to do something a little meta, I make a lot of shows for a living, my own and those with brands. And I'm also starting to teach marketers how to make great shows. Uh, If you're interested in doing that, head over to my new venture, Marketingshowrunners.com. The subscribers over there have been, I've been blown away, quite frankly. Marketers from Red Bull, the BBC, LinkedIn, Zendesk, Wells Fargo, Zapier, Shopify. It's just, it's a small but growing community of marketers who believe the same thing. We believe marketing isn't about those who arrive. It's about those who day. So that's marketingshowrunners.com if you're interested in the craft of making great shows to build passionate audiences. Either way, remember, there is way too much conventional thinking out there, way too many best practices and trends and old stale thinking. And if you're faced with that information, maybe, just maybe, trust your intuition. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. See ya.